0: We're going to carry on uh, in our series called Disciple. In fact, I think it's only three or four weeks, and then we're done uh, with a series. I think we'll conclude it on Baptism Sunday. Um, and so uh, today's um, subject is actually our bodies or um, a Christian sexual ethic. And so I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have your Bibles with you, please read along. Verse 13 to 20. We'll base... Today's sermon, today's teaching on this, so if you have it with you, turn there, otherwise follow along on the screen. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy, destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by His power. Help me, Jesus, as we look at these verses and uh, yeah, we meditate on your truth, which you empower me as I speak in Jesus' name. The premise of this whole uh, sermon series is that Jesus is to be followed, right? That's why it's called Disciples, Following Jesus Today. And um, if Jesus is to be followed and obeyed, um, it means that Jesus is a teacher. He, he tells us and, and teaches us. Uh, how to live. But Jesus is more than a teacher. We kicked off the sermon with that reality that he is Lord. He's not just Savior. He's not just someone who certainly taught, uh, but he is God. He is Lord. And so his teaching, yes, is not only good because of what it contains. What Jesus asks of us and and tells not just of us, but of, of humanity, what he asks of us to do, it does contain some good things, but it is also good because of who says it. Because of who Jesus is, because he is God, we find ourselves obeying God. He is supreme in that sense, the highest authority. So we obey him. But here's the thing. We also trust Jesus because he's a good God. It's not just he's God better do what he says. We know he's a good God, and so we can trust His instructions to us. And if you're not a Christian here today, maybe you're listening online. This is the bit I want you to leave with. I want you to know this. I want you to hear that. So don't switch off when you hear the subject, you go, Oh, I know exactly where these Christians are gonna go. God is good, so we can trust what he asks of us. As I said, I've titled the message today, Our Bodies, but it's really a message on the Christian sexual ethic, and actually, I mean, I spent maybe 35, 40 minutes on this, so it's more of a foundational um, uh, introduction to it, but I trust you will journey along with me. Colossians chapter 1, John chapter 1, these are two books in the New Testament, that tells us that Jesus is God, and Jesus is our creator, and so if Jesus is our creator, here's some of the implications. If he is the creator of all things, it means there is design behind it. That's what we believe. There's no accidents around here, okay? There's intelligent design in all of creation, and that includes you, and so you are designed. And if you are designed, this is the second implication. It means there is intent. For everything God has made, there's a purpose, and that includes you and me. There is a point to him making you. And if there's a point, if there's an intent behind your creation you being created, well, you can either do what God's called you to do, and that would be correct, or not do what he's called you to do, and that would be incorrect. So immorality comes in as a a byproduct of intent that's a byproduct of design that is a byproduct of God being the creator. Are you following along with me? And because there is morality, because there is purpose behind your body and you being created, there is accountability. Because as we read here, you are not your own. He made you. He designed you. Are you tracking with me? And so Jesus definitely taught on sex and sexuality. And the New Testament writers, much like we read here in 1 Corinthians, this is Paul writing, they expounded on the teachings of Jesus. And the teachings of Jesus is actually pretty simple when it comes to sex and sexuality. Jesus affirmed the original creation account as taught in Genesis, the first chapters of Genesis. To Jesus, that is Correct. To Jesus, that is normal. That is the intent that he has for his creation, you and me. And I'm going to just use Sean McDowell's summary. There's many good ones over there. This is the one I settled on for this one. This is the definition, if Jesus had to give it to you. Marriage is a sexed union between one man and one woman for life. Let me put it in another way, that sexual intimacy is meant for the context of marriage, and marriage, according to the definition of Jesus, is a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. Okay, now I know today we are, we have some of our um, high schoolers with us and some of the ones who just graduated, and so some of your parents are thinking, where's we going to go? Do I have to take my children out here? And, and I, I want to just say to you, calm down first of all, um, you know, one of, my, one of my kids 12 years old, and I know what they are being taught in comprehensive sex education at this stage. I, I, consent, for example, consent between individuals is something that my 12-year-old has to deal with right now. So I don't think I'm stepping out of the bounds right here. I think, friends, this is Canada. It's, it's Pride Month. I think we should talk about these things, right? And so in affirming and accepting that simple, very narrow definition, Jesus is also therefore denying and rejecting whatever does not fit into that. Okay, that's the implication of Jesus. That's why I'm saying it's actually quite simple. We don't have to overcomplicate this. And in the last 60 years, since the sexual revolution, it certainly started earlier, you know, enlightenment maybe kicked that off. I would say there's a fresh separation from the way of Jesus. Now I'm saying fresh because promiscuity and all of this stuff has is, is always been happening, okay, but when I say there's a, f- a fresh separation, there's a sense that m- perhaps culture again is no longer looking at the things that are outside of that definition as wrong, even though people are doing it, they are now affirming it and saying, no, but it's right. So you get what I'm trying to say. So we've seen. Let me give you a quick summary here. This is actually John Mark Comer. He's written a great book. This is in his book called "Live No Lies." Um, he starts off by saying, you know, it began 60 years ago with maybe promiscuity becoming normal, where we've separated sex from marriage. Right, number one, and then with abortion and birth control uh, uh, being norm- normalized um, it's then separated sex from Procreation. So first, separated from marriage, then separate sex from procreation, and then with the rise of divorcing, that's just so acceptable, uh, um, and what they call no-fault divorce, um, people can then therefore separate sex from inf- um, from uh, intimacy and fidelity. So marriage then is diluted down to just a contract that you can com- can break, and not a covenant that must be honored, and the natural. Next step there is the hookup culture that we know where you can therefore, if you can just You know, divorce your spouse, and you can basically just hook up with anybody, therefore, Um, and it's separating sex from that fidelity and intimacy, that covenant, even more, and it's become a sense of like, well, it's a personal need, you know, if you want to meet your personal need, if there's a sexual appetite, desire, you can fulfill that need with whatever and whomever is in front of you, whenever you want to, and that has led to, obviously, where we find ourselves here, again, where there's, you know, with the LGBTQ+, and I'm getting it wrong, the abbreviation, but there's a further separation from sex, from the, the male and the female binary, as taught by Jesus, and the, the trans uh, scenario at the moment, transgender uh, conversations, is separating gender from even biological sex, and so, you know, I'm just sort of giving you the, how the dominoes has fallen, and all of this, again, is outside of the simple definition of what Jesus wants for his creation, Marriage as a sex union between one man and one woman for life. Now, I know I've already alluded to this, that it is Pride Month, and I want you to hear me that I'm not picking on the LGBTQ, etc. community when I'm speaking right now. And if you're listening over there, I hope you can hear me because... You need to know that Jesus' teachings was as shocking to those first century, you know, promiscuous Greco-Roman individuals. It was as shocking to them as it perhaps is to the ears of our liberal, you know, Western context right now. So it's not like, oh, all of a sudden this is new news. No, this is not, this is not new in that sense. Okay, so I'm not picking. And, and I want you to know that Jesus spoke against sexual immorality. So he didn't just define it in those terms. Clicking double clicking on Genesis. He spoke against sexual immorality, but he also spent time with the sexually immoral people. He spent time with them and they felt loved by Jesus, though Jesus did not affirm them. This is this is one of those things that stares us in the face in the scriptures. We, we can't just go oh, walk away. No, 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 wait, wait, wait a minute. There is a way that you could still feel loved and be disagreed with. All right, We I don't agree that we can change the meaning of the word tolerance. It just doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen that easily. And so the amazing thing is that when they did experience the forgiveness of Jesus, when they experienced those sexually immoral, immoral uh, um, people, when they experienced God's grace, Jesus told them to go and sin no more. And so I actually want to start off by picking on believers. Okay, if you want to blame me for picking on someone, I want to pick on us who are Christ followers, the church in a sense, our church, just those who follow Jesus. And before I dive into that, I do want to give credit to Sam Alberry on this particular passage and this particular topic. He's he's the person that I look to primarily this week. He's a single, a celibate man uh, that has a same-sex attraction history. He can define it in his own way. Um, he's written amazing books like, Is God Anti-Gay? And What Does God Say About My Bodies? And so I just wanted to give credit where credit is due. But let me first start off now by picking on believers here. Because the teachings of Jesus, so yes, we're looking at sex and sexuality, but all the teachings of Jesus confronts all humanity. Let's just, let's just be honest. There is a cost to following Jesus. Jesus made it very clear when he invited people to follow him, he said, Whoa, 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 whoa. First, I want you to count the cost. Let me give you two examples he would give them. He said, if No one goes to war just casually. You look back and you see, Do I have enough, um, have a big enough army? Otherwise, I'm gonna lose. You, and he says, no one builds a tower and does not count the cost in terms of, do I have enough building materials? Otherwise, I'm going to start building and not complete it. And he says, that's the same way to following me. There's a cost involved. So before you just, oh, I love you, Jesus. You're the amazing teacher. He's like, whoa, whoa it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you something. He's saying, I'm going, I want you to deny yourself. This culture that we live in says, oh, express yourself. Help, express yourself. But Jesus actually says, deny yourself. He cuts right across the cultural norm. And to take up your cross, when Jesus said that to his followers, they all knew what it meant. It probably sent chills down their spines because crosses was meant for, were meant for crucifixion. It was a brutal death. And he said to his disciples, take up your cross and follow me. So in other words, friends, following Jesus for you and me must feel like it's killing us most days. It must count come at a cost. And so my question is, to believers and to us here today is how is your self-denial looking? How, how are you doing with your own self-denial as a follower, an obedient follower of Jesus? How are you doing with your inordinate desires, your unrighteous desires that wage war against your flesh and your body? Maybe it is your desire for power and you wanna be seen and, and known, you wanna make a mark You want to be respected. Maybe it's your desire for money and material things or your desire for comforts in this world. Those things, those inordinate desires cut across what Jesus has taught and is teaching us. How are you doing with your sexual appetite? Whether you're straight or not, whether you're married or single, how are you doing fighting your flesh as believers? Your private life. Maybe you're public. what the movies you watch, the books you read. My question is, friends, are you counting the cost? Because I think it's weird and it's wacky to demand a, a great cost for the people over there. Those people over there, oh, they must give everything up, okay? But actually, we don't deny ourselves. And when they look at us, do they see us, in a sense, suffering for Jesus too, counting the cost? Because then they will go, This Jesus is worth it. Look at what these people are giving up for Jesus. He must be good. He must be worth it. Friends, are we doing that? So I'm picking (laughs) on believers. And maybe this will offend some of you. But be careful not to frown upon those who come out as gay when actually you haven't even come out as a Christian. As a real Christian. It just, I mean, that's, that's my phrase, so let, don't. I want, hopefully I'm stepping on your toes. I'm not quoting someone else here. Today, our Uber driver was confronted with a car full of Christians that came out in the four minutes, all right? My father asked him a very straight question about his eternal destiny. But the reality is, is that every day we can put Jesus on display, do we? Or, are some of the people in your office completely unaware of the fact that you're a follower of Jesus, I, you know, I, I often respond when people ask me questions. Oh, well, okay, you're Christian, so let me ask me this, qu- answer this question, you know, do you, do you do gay weddings? That might be the first thing they offer. Or do you think it's, the, the, you know, the transgender, uh, do you agree with the transgender ideology? And so they ask me that question, and I, and I don't like to answer that straight up, because I first stop and I say to them, well, look, think about it this way. Like, you know, I've got some friends who live in Portland and, and, uh, and, and California, and and um, property is expensive there like it is over here. Now, you might ask the question, oh, is this a really nice neighborhood to live in? You know, are the people nice in and over around here? It's a silly question to ask if you're not willing to move there, if you're not willing to pay the price. So I actually stop. I refuse to ask those kinds of questions if people aren't willing to Count the cost to follow Jesus. I'm like, do you are you really interested in who Jesus is? And taking all of his words, not perhaps just what he's saying around this narrow subject of sex and sexuality, but everything, how you spend your money, the kind of friends you would have, perhaps the kind of job you take, all of those things, how you raise your children, if you have any, how you are single, Every single thing Jesus declares lordship over and he wants you to submit that to him. And if you're not willing to do that, I'm not going to answer this tiny question. It's a, it's a non-starter. Does that make any sense? And friends, that's why I'm saying to Christians, are we modeling that Jesus is worth giving it up? Living countercultural? His kingdom is better than the culture. We don't take our cues from the culture. We take our cues from the king. And so... That leads me to the next point, which is really a note to outsiders. Maybe you're listening today and you're not a Christian. I want to say to you that when Jesus gives a prohibition or when the Bible tells us not to do something, we have to ask, what is the good that that instruction is prohibiting? What is the good that that thing, that instruction is protecting? There must be, and there I want to say to you, there is a positive behind what you might see only as a negative. There is an invitation from the Lord for us not just to have good things, but to have the best. He is good. You can trust Him. He wants the best for you. And you know, sin is sin. Okay? The scriptures are quite clear. It often throws gossip and sexual immorality and disobedience to your parents in the same verse. Okay? I'm telling you now, sin is sin. But... As we read here in 1 Corinthians 6, that sexual sin is unique as well in some way. It is unique. And the extent of damage done by its misuse of of sex and sexuality points to the extent of the good and the blessing it brings when it is properly used. Are you hearing me? There is a good behind the prohibition. Don't just see the negative. There is a positive. God wants the best for you. And I want to say to you, friends, Jesus is good. I want you to remember the most loving person that has ever walked the face of the earth is the one who taught these principles. It it came out of the mouth of someone who is worthy of your worship, someone who is even now singing, who loves you more than you could compute. And so let's turn to this passage. In 1 Corinthians 6. And this passage started off by saying, oh, the body is for food and the food is for body. And that was really just a slogan in the Corinthians' day. And they used that slogan to justify sexual immorality. They basically said, well, just like, you know, if you're hungry, you eat. Well, if you're aroused, you know, you have sex or you, 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 you take what you need. Whenever, from whoever. That's... That's what Paul is coming against here. And that's the, that's, that's the teaching that follows as a result. And so the first thing that we learn in this passage is that the Lord is for your body. The Lord is for your body. In verse 13, you see that. Jesus loves our bodies. Your bodies are made with purpose and intent as we said. Psalm 139, this is the psalmist. David says in verse 13 that God knitted us together in our mother's womb. And he says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That is what God thinks of your body. And this this knitting, my wife recently knitted this beautiful, long, uh, what color is it? Aqua. What is it? The scarf. Teal. I don't know. One of those colors. Two other guys is just blue. So, um, and I can tell you now, it took forever. And the reason why it took so long is not because uh, Tanya is bad at knitting. It's because every single stitch needed her hands, and she, her hands were often occupied with other things Okay, she's busy. There was there was no such, such thing as her starting this, and she just did a quick little knit, and then she left it and just momentum took care of the rest. Every single stitch of this teal little scarf that she can only use next winter, um, had, wasn't, had her hands involved in there. And that's how God is, how involved he is in creating our bodies. We are handcrafted. We're not mass produced. God is an artisan in that sense. You are made individually. And because you are made by the creator individually, you are made with intention. Like I said, there's purpose for your body. There are guidelines, rules, and regulations in a sense for God, for you, for your body to flourish according to the one who made it. And as I said, that is where the morality thing comes in, because he made you. He gets to call the shots in terms of how you, that he made, is supposed to roll. But isn't a great? This is good news because maybe some of you you might think that um, you're an accident, and maybe 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 you were told you were you were not meant to be, and some pain in that story. And actually, this. Verse in Psalm 139 tells us that God meant for you to be there because there is, He knitted every single one of you together. In your mother's womb, there is no accident there. And as we carry on reading here, we do see that Paul uses the word for body and for you interchangeably. And so the, the, the amazing thing here is that um he's saying you are your body and, and your and your body is you, and in a culture today where there's so much confusion regarding your identity and your body, again, the gospel gives us good news, and I would say gives us clarity in the midst of confusion. It gives us a balanced view of the Scriptures. The Scriptures tells us that, yeah, we are more than our bodies. You know, we don't just judge a book by its cover and we would be wrong just to measure people by their outward appearances. But the Bible also tells us, as we've read here, that the body, body isn't nothing either. The body is important. God made it, knit it together. And a secular worldview that would tell us that, you know, everything is just an accident. It would say that even your body is just incidental. It just happens to be there if you're a materialist. Um, It's here by chance. But the scriptures tell us it's not, that God had intent and purpose. Our physicality, your physicality is not random. It's not a product of chance. And, you know, um, Sam Albert used the example of this movie Avatar that everybody loses their minds over, which really tells that cultural narrative that your body has nothing to do with your identity it's who you are on the inside and you could even change species if you want to because that's not who you really are and the scripture tells us no your body means something genesis 2 it tells us that god formed our bodies adam and eve our, our first parents out of the dust of the earth and then he breathed life into it it's quite profound i never thought of the order of things quite like that we he didn't make a soul and then he goes oh my goodness i need to find a housing for this what am i going to do what am i going to do no actually he carefully crafted your body and then he breathed life into Adam and Eve. And uh, the Bible even tells us that new bodies are coming. It's part of the promise of of, of the consummation of, of all things. When Jesus wraps up this project and he sets all things straight, the new body is coming too. So a body it matters, and that's why when people uh, um, use the term, oh, it's just, it's just physical, like even like they said in the Corinthians, it's just like food. If you have an appetite, you eat. It's the same thing. We know that isn't true. We know that our bodies actually mean something. It's connected to, uh, deeply to, to who we are as human beings because when a husband cheats on his wife or when a wife you know, is unfaithful to her husband, to just say, oh, it didn't mean anything, baby. It was, just, it was just physical, just two bodies doing their thing. We know that's not a sufficient answer, right? There's more to it. When, when our bodies are mistreated, when there's injustice, we can't just go, oh, well, it was just physical, you know? It breaks us and, and, and hurts us in profound and profound ways. So the body is you and you are your body, and our bodies, regardless of the imperfections, are gifts to us. If God put, put, put us together, then we need to be stewards of these gifts. Whether we find ourselves sick, when we find, whether we find ourselves in pain because of things done to us, um, pain from shame, whatever the case is. I think David, when he penned this, David wasn't a perfect man either. He knew what it is to to actually not be a good steward of his body and of his desires. He said still, he started off as saying, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made because you have a body. This is my second point. Your body is for the Lord. You can use and must use and you will flourish when you do use your body to grieve glory and honor to Jesus, when you do it his way, because the body is for the Lord. Verse 19 in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 here, he says, you are not your own, you were bought, bought at a price. Jesus owns you, especially if you're a believer, he, he owns you. You know, when you a believer, you admit that he, my father always tells this amazing story of uh, of, of somebody um, purchasing a boat and then s- little sailboat, then losing it on 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 the seas because of a gust of wind, and then someone else picks it up and they take it to a a, 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 a you know a, a used goods store, and and this little boy walks past it and he sees the boat in the window, and then and then he's like, "That's mine!" and the owner says, "No, sorry, it's going to cost you six bucks." And so the little boy works really hard, gets the six bucks, and then purchases the boat, and he walks out and he says, "This boat is twice I own you twice over." I made you, which is how the story began, by the way. He made this little boat and he says, and then I bought you. Is that how it goes, dad? Something like that. And that is because your body is for the Lord because he bought you with a price. As a Christian, we can say, I'm God's twice over. He made me and then he bought me. But even if you're not a Christian, he made you, he owns you in that sense. He's got copyright claims on you. And we can Be trusted with Jesus as our owner. When we own one another, it goes really bad. Just look over your shoulders in history. But when Jesus owns us, it cannot be a better deal. He didn't steal us. He says he purchased us with his own blood is what the gospel says. And what does this mean? Well, this passage tells us it means that we are temples of the Holy Spirit. Again, because of the price Jesus paid there, God can actually use you and I as his address on planet Earth. He fills us with his spirit. Isn't that an incredible thing? He wants to be near our bodies so much that he wants to fill our bodies. He wants to move in. This is what it means to belong to Jesus. This is what it means to say, my body is not my own. It is an incredible thing that God would want to come that close. The disciple John, I love this. He called himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. What a way to describe yourself. Hi, I'm Vic. And I'm the one that Jesus loves. Nah, 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 nah. My wife always tells me I'm God's favorite, as in like she thinks she is. But it is in fact me. And um, I love that. I love what John, how John describes himself because in this culture, we are defined by who we love. That's, that's this cultural trend right now. Who you choose to love, that's, who, that's your, that definition of who you are. Is who you choose to love. But John says, no, no, no. I am defined by who loves me. Jesus loves me. How, again, how, how do we know? There is a cross where he gave his body, his life for you and me. And if we belong to Jesus, then Jesus is the only person that our bodies need to please. That's why this is good news for single people and for married people. If you belong to Jesus, the only person your body needs to please is your owner, Jesus. And you can be satisfied as a single, celibate human being. It's because Jesus owns you, and he is the best. The body that is pleasing to the Lord is the one that is given to Jesus. In a sense, given back to Jesus. Because He purchased you and He made you. Romans 12.1. This is a well-worn verse if you're a Christian. What did I say? You were just writing Romans 12.1. You were one step ahead of me. Good job, bro. I'm going to use that as a natural break in the sermon for a sip. Brian, what does Romans 12.1 say? There you go. By God's mercy, it tells us that we need to offer up our bodies as living sacrifices that are acceptable to Him. And so if we understand God's mercy, again, look at that cross, God's kindness and God's grace, God's mercy upon us as a result of that cross. The only sane response is to give Him your body, is what Romans 12 is saying. There's nothing better you can do with your body, friends, than surrender it to Jesus. This culture tells us, no, 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 you got to use your body for this. you gotta, you got to get a little bit of that, a little something, something over here. And then you'll be happy. But the truth is, if you give yourself to Jesus, there's nothing better you can do with what he's given you, your body. consecrated to him. It's amazing that he is interested and he wants to receive it. And again, it's, he's not a killjoy. When you do that, you will be most satisfied. When Jesus is most glorified in and through you, you will be most satisfied. That is the truth. All else is a lie. Let's read Romans chapter 6, verse 12 to 14 together. It should be up on the screen as well. It says, Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Wow. It tells us here, That our relationship to sin, in particular, sinning with our bodies, it has changed. We are not bound to sin anymore. That's what Jesus accomplished on that cross for us. He didn't just set us free on that cross from the penalty of sin. That's why he died. But also from the power of sin. And we know one day we look ahead to when he returns, he will set us free from the presence of sin. But in this moment, in this now-not-yet kingdom, we can be set free from the power of sin. And so some of you might hear, oh, I'll offer my body up to Jesus. How do I do that? It's so difficult. Well, Jesus gives us a way too. That's why he fills us with his spirit to empower us. That's why he treats us with mercy and grace. And it says the grace of God is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness. If you're a Christian, there is a way to live winning in this area. And this describes in Romans chapter 6 of what we used to do. You know, he's saying, um, do not present your your, instruments of right, uh, your your members as instruments of righteousness, um, telling that we are now dead to sin. In other words, once we were alive, once we used to do that. But now we get to offer our body parts as instruments of righteousness. In other words, the same bodies that we may have used to break God's heart, to hurt others. It's saying that God redeems that, that the same members we can actually use to bring glory to him, to use as instruments of righteousness. This means there's nothing that you have done and have said and have thought that cannot be redeemed. The promise in this beautiful passage is that God can turn that around. It's not like a few strikes and you're out. That He can, act, you can actually experience redemption to the extent that the same members of your body, like it wasn't a swap out. It's like it can be redeemed. It can be used for g- glory, whether it's in celibacy or whether it's in covenantal relationship with with, with a spouse. But there is redemption. Isn't this beautiful? that you can be redeemed to that extent. And this does look different for different people, depending on how God has uniquely wired you or how you have uniquely been shaped by your surroundings, your context, and so on. Worshiping Jesus in this way, this redeemed way, can look different for different people. I, I, you know, I, I was listening to Sam Alberry actually share a testimony about his story. And he's saying that God's redemptive work in his life certainly his affections vertically changed. His love for Jesus, like he's like, Jesus loves me. He bought me. I surrender. I love him. You know, even what we said in our singing time at the end of it, you know, he loved us first. And so we love him as a response to that, that, that affection horizontally changed, but the, uh, sorry, um, vertically changed, but you know, there's a sanctification Process often with the horizontal affections, and he even him saying saying that actually our horizontal affections could change. For him, you know, as a as a same sex attracted individual, possibly he's you know he said that my horizontal affections may change. Maybe maybe I can be attracted to someone uh, of the opposite sex, but that doesn't guarantee more holiness. You know, he he tells a story, asks somebody, you know, like if if I would be straight, would I be less tempted? The person said, no. He said, well, that doesn't sound like a net gain in holiness. (laughs) So his prayer, in a sense, is not to be a heterosexual. He wants to be more holy. He wants to honor Jesus. And so what does that look like in his life? Single celibacy. But there is this reality that Jesus is God. Jesus is good. And so whatever he asks of me, and however that plays out in the now, it is for my best for my goods for me to flourish isn't it incredible what what an amazing testimony and so we you asked that question in terms of your life what does it look like to honor jesus with your body in this culture that tells you how to use your body in every other ways and are you willing to stick it out to count the cost are you can't will you embrace the exile as the Bible describes us. In other words, you clearly are, although you live here, you're not from here. You're from his kingdom. It's to honor him and to flourish as a human being. And this, this theology of our body means that we don't have to worry if our bodies are necessarily pleasing to another per- person, pleasing to this culture, pleasing to family members or, wh- or whoever. Why? Because none of those people, none of the, the culture did not give up its body for you. But we have in the gospel and we have it represented in these beautiful tables in front of us. In the gospel, we have Jesus giving his body up for us to purchase us and to redeem us. He is the only one that you should follow in terms of what to do with your body, because he gave his body up for you. And he did that, as I said, to buy you back. And here's the thing, Jesus has no buyer's remorse. No buyer's remorse. Isn't that liberating? And so I'd love for us to actually gather around the communion tables as an appropriate response to this, remembering with the the bread and the juice, that actually these are, these, are, these are physical realities, telling us that a physical body, Jesus, king of the universe, took upon himself flesh, a body, and he used his body. He was a single celibate man, never married, never overstepped any inappropriate boundaries to glorify his father and to save us to be the perfect substitute that he can die on that cross, sinless for the sins that you and I have committed and might commit in the body. There is grace and mercy for us because his body hung on that cross. And I want to invite you, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're listening online. I want to say to you the cultural narrative around your body. It is not true. Jesus said you will know the truth. You can know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We've given you a snippet of that. And he is inviting you to surrender your body to him. And he's the only one that can demand that because he gave his body for you. Will you do that? And maybe there are some backstories here today. Maybe there is some repenting some fresh repenting that needs to take place. Maybe there's some realigning, you need to realign yourself with the truth of Scripture. Maybe you've been you've been assaulted by the message of the culture and you've buckled a little bit, but there's grace here for you. There's grace and forgiveness. And I want you to receive God's mercy. I want you to speak to the body of Christ. This is the other amazing thing. Jesus is willing to associate still with Human bodies by calling his church a body. That's how much he loves your body. He's willing to call you his body still. And his body is a place where we could stand with, forgive, extend grace, help one another if we may have fallen short of Jesus' sexual ethic. He doesn't want you to um, be disconnected. Again, he wants to bring you're close. The body of Jesus is a place where you could receive help and healing and prayer. And so I want to invite you to the table that represents the body of Jesus. And then, as a and, and, and after that, as we thank God for giving Himself for us, that you would do business with Him and that you would find yourself speaking to brothers and sisters in God's body who love you, if this is an area where you need the Jesus to deliver you, set you free. Is that okay? Let's stand.